This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 164. Today we speak with Dr. Roland Ward about the Creation Covenant. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey. This is episode number 164, and we have a great one lined up for you today. Let me introduce the panel to you this morning, or this afternoon, I should say. We have Nick Batzik, who is a church planter at New Covenant Presbyterian Church in Richmond Hill, Georgia. It's great to have you back on the program, Nick. Thanks, Camden. It's good to be on today. We also have uh, calling in on Skype, Jeff Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you, brother? Doing well. It's good to That's talk good. to you again. It's been a while since we've had some of the old timers on uh, on Crisis Center. Not referring to your age, <laughs> but you. your uh, involvement in the program. Uh, we've been mixing it up a little bit for the last couple of months. Um but we're very excited today to be speaking to our esteemed guest, Dr. Roland Ward, who is a minister of Knox Presbyterian Church of Eastern Australia in Melbourne. And he is the author of several books and articles, and we will mention those in just a minute. But let me welcome you to the program, Dr. Ward. It's very, very great to have you, all the way from Australia. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be with you. It's uh, it's a joy to always speak uh, to people in other countries and the wonders of technology. Now we're able to do this over Skype and get a decent connection, and uh, we're very excited and pleased to be able to uh, share with our listeners a little bit about your book, God and Adam: Reformed Theology and the Creation Covenant. And we are going to be speaking about that today. But before we get into that book and the wonderful topic of historical theology and uh, the covenants, we need to pause for any bits of news. Or announcements? Is there anything to mention, guys? In terms of uh, books, uh, I'm trying to think if there's any. I think Joel Beakey a... has a new book out on prayer, and he is co- oh, yes, co-edited. Right. Um, I can't pronounce the what, the man's last name, but it's Brian on the website. Najafor. Najafor, that's Brian, right. I think it's Najafor, Brian Najafor. So that is available. Um, we also have... Uh, just today was announced the uh, Westminster Theological Seminary uh, Faith and Science Conference, which is going to be That's taking right. place, I believe, April 8th and 9th. You can check their website out for that, wts.edu. Um, there's a lot of conferences coming up. It's going to be that spring conference season in a few months, mm-hmm. and so I'm sure there will be many more announcements in uh, future weeks. In terms of Reform Forum, we have had many changes in the last several weeks. We are broadcasting most of our episodes in live audio and video at reformedforum.tv. And uh, we've revamped uh, reformedforum.org to include all sorts of different options uh, for downloading our episodes. You can download them in several different formats now, not just audio only, but audio and then several different video formats that you can watch online or subscribe and get them automatically downloaded to your iPod, iPad, Android phone, all sorts of different things. So check all of those new changes out at reformedforum.org. And, uh, and then, yeah, I, I just wanted to mention too, um, conference that looks good coming up is the next 2011 conference. Oh, yeah. I, think I think that's Dr. Oliphant's so, going to be at that one, I believe. Yep. Vern Poitras, yeah. um, Scott Oliphant, Kevin DeYoung, R.C. Sproul, D.A. Carson, 
Jeff Perswell. I think that's the Sovereign Grace conference yeah. that CJ Mahaney and them put on, and that'll be in Orlando May 28th through 31st. So that looks like it's going to be a, a good lineup. Yeah, it is. It's um, I'm excited about that one. It should be uh, some excellent lectures and uh, addresses coming out of that, and I'm sure there are going to be many ways for you to partake, even if you aren't able to be there in Orlando. I'm sure there'll be audio and video available for that as well, um, as most big-time conferences are. And, uh, of course, we need to mention before we get into the meat of our discussion that Christ the Center and all, everything that we do at Reformed Forum is listener-supported and viewer-supported, I should say. If you're able to support us, we would encourage you to go to the website right now at reformedforum.org donate and uh, help us to continue to produce and distribute all of these programs free of charge. And we are definitely in need of uh, some equipment and to get the video uh, finalized. So if you could help out, we would very much greatly appreciate that. And also remember to keep us in your prayers as we continue to labor uh, for the sake of the church as a parachurch organization in support of the church, not in replacement of the church. So visit us online at reformforum.org to help us out. Thank you so much for your support of all that we're doing at Reform Forum and for this program, Christ the Center. Well, we do have an excellent program today, not just saying that, as uh, can be easy to do, but we're very interested and privileged to be speaking about this book from Dr. Roland Ward, God and Adam, Reformed Theology and the Creation Covenant. Dr. Ward, as I uh, open up with you, I want to ask just a general question. Uh, The Creation Covenant is something that many people think is is, uh, being just a, a pillar or a very important distinctive of Reformed theology. Has there been a wide range of views on this issue in the church history past? Well, I think you'd have to say that the idea of a covenant at creation, and specifically a covenant with Adam, is very disputed uh, for a number of reasons. Probably some of those will come out in our discussion. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is certainly a distinctive of Reformed theology, Mm -hmm. often called in fact, covenant theology, because of its its attention and emphasis on this particular uh, area. Although you'd have to say, in one sense, that Calvin doesn't emphasize a covenant as such with Adam, uh, doesn't use the terminology, although perhaps the largest um, substance is there. Um, but there have been a number of, you know, no question among form people, this is really the... Hmm. Oh, what are uh, Calvin? Of course, said it was an early uh, proponent of what we now call covenant theology. It might be more appropriate to call him a, a federal theologian. And Dr. Lilback, who's president of Westminster, has written a book on that particular subject. Um, who are some other large figures that uh, loom uh, in the history of covenant theology and that have developed it in one way or the other? Just so we can provide the listener with a little bit of a historical sketch as to the developments of this doctrine. Well, you can, uh, I think you can see uh, elements of what is more self-consciously uh, described as covenant theology around about the late 1800s. You can see there writers uh, like Ozenus uh, with the Heidelberg Catechism and so on. Uh, you can see it in Calvin, uh, you can particularly see it in a man who first probably uses this language in a fellow called Amandus Polanus, who wrote some massive works, which unfortunately are not yet uh, translated Latin into English, but he is 
probably that sort of uh, covenant language um, uh, and, a, and a post-creation, pre-fall covenant with Adam. But uh, you find it almost immediately after that, just over the place in reform that your uh, writers or readers might know would be Robert Rollock, who was the uh, the first uh, principal of the University of Edinburgh. Uh, on that, John uh, Ball, who was uh, one of the fathers, uh, his book is published actually at the time of the Westminster Assembly, but you find it all over the place. Uh, if you move a little bit beyond the uh, the pre-Westminster period uh, and move into the Westminster period, of course, it's a universal viewpoint. But again, there are, there are differences and discussions and the covenant theology doesn't really come to its full maturity until after the Westminster um, Assembly in some aspects of it, particularly the covenant of redemption, so-called. Mm. Uh, that's not clearly developed in, perhaps until, say, uh, 1670s when it's much more evident. But the fact that covenant theology uh, quickly becomes the norm, there's hardly any discussion about it, shows how its basic ideas were incipient in what went before with the early reformers. Um, and then, of course, uh, the, the great men that you think of uh, would be people like Samuel Rutherford or Herman Vitsius in particular, whom I very much like as an exponent of covenant theology, Turretin, of course, uh, even Bunyan, people like that. Well, then you, you find, of course, covenant theology with the American theologians, the Princeton men and, uh, and the Southern Presbyterians. It's, it's universal there. Some of the discussion I'm not 100% happy with, uh, really, myself. But then coming into the 20th century, you have a bit of an eclipse of covenant theology. It sort of gets neglected into a more general evangelicalism. But then there's that resurgence and renewal of it. And you find covenant theologians like John Murray, who has his own distinctive uh, on it, which you'll probably ask me about. Uh, and then you have, uh, uh, of course, people like Palmer Robinson uh, and uh, uh, coming right into the uh, modern period. Uh, you've got that whole discussion uh, with um, uh, people like... Uh, uh, who's the man who uh, was Meredith Klein? Shepherd, Mer Meredith, Meredith Klein. Klein. Meredith Klein. And in fact, it's that polarization between Klein and Shepherd that led to the writing of this, uh, what I regard really as a kind of an introductory text to covenant theology. Mm. Yeah, I want to I wanna just commend your book at the outset. It, it has been one of the most helpful resources for me. I've read a lot of the writers you've mentioned, but to, to have it gathered together um, in such a succinct way is very, very helpful, especially with the Klein um, uh, Shepherd issue and seeing the transitions even in Klein. So we do look forward to getting to that in this discussion. I was hoping that maybe you could uh, tell our listeners how you understand um, – what a covenant is. How would you define covenant? Because that, to me, seems like it's a fundamental starting place that oftentimes gets taken for granted or misunderstood from the outset. Mm -hmm. And you do that in your book. Would you be willing to define that, for what you believe a biblical covenant is? Yeah, well, I think, I think we have to be uh, uh, recognized that from the word covenant, in Hebrew, we, we, we're not really sure where that comes from. But the notion 
of a covenant is that it is a relation. It's a, uh, should we say, a relationship uh, or agreement, if you like. Um, uh, how can I describe this satisfactorily? It's an agreement between friends who love each other, I think I wrote. But um, it's, it's a commitment. It's a solemn commitment on the part of one to another. And when we start talking about covenants between God and man, then it becomes a, a commitment by God, initiated by God, involving also responsibilities on the part of the one with whom it's made. But the main point to remember is that covenant is not to be equated with contract uh, it's not simply a legal arrangement it is a love bond if you like mm. so that we are to see in it uh, that uh, something like well you might take marriage as an example where there are certainly obligations involved there commitments involved there but you can't define a marriage I don't think biblically as simply as a contract. There are those obligations, but there is that love bond that's at the heart of it. And I think it's often a failure to keep those two elements together uh, that leads to problems. People want to define a covenant as if there are no obligations, or they want to define it as if it's only obligations. So it's a legal thing, and that really puts a very nasty uh, twist on the biblical notion of covenant, which is very much involved with God's intimate commitment to his creatures and his concern for their well-being. Now, you mention in your book, and rightly so, that the first time Bereath uh, appears in Scripture is uh, in Genesis, I believe, 6 or 8 with Noah. And you argue there that um, we shouldn't take that as the first occasion of covenant, but just the first ex express um, mention of uh, covenant Bereath in the Old Testament. Can you explain kind of the argument why you understand that as um, an establishment of an existing covenantal arrangement and maybe uh, talk a little bit about the parallels between Adam and Noah and how you understand that? Well, I think the, the, there's, a, there's a number of ways in which you can argue this. Uh, but when you look at covenant in Genesis um, 6 verse 8, uh, the uh, Hebrew word hekim seems to have the notion of conferring something already existing rather than originating something. And if we, uh, if we take that for the moment and then look at the context, we're rather confirmed in that viewpoint because the, when the covenant is renewed with Noah, uh, the terms of that covenant about being fruitful, multiplying, being blessed by the Lord and so on are uh, really in the same terms as you have in the promise in Genesis chapter 1. Um, so that the, the notion is that you have the first Adam who fails and then you have the world, as it were, reduced to its pre-creation state, uh, covered with water, and then you have Noah, the righteous man, who steps out of the ark on a new and cleansed earth. He's the new Adam, and uh, God continues his covenant with him. Of course, we find that, that Noah is not able to sustain the burden of the world's redemption. Um, and so we have to look for another, and ultimately, of course, we find that other in Jesus Christ. But you can argue also from other references in Jeremiah to the way in which we have... Uh, uh, the covenant for day and night, uh, the way it ties into those promises that are originally given both to Adam and to Noah. Uh, so I think it's very difficult to argue 
that we don't have uh, what we call a covenant relationship with Adam, even though the word covenant does not appear in that narrative. That is not of itself an argument against it. You have the same sort of thing in Second um, Samuel 7, where uh, God makes promises uh, to David, and in Psalm 89, those promises are referred to. In the one, you have no reference to the word covenant at all. Right. In the other, you do. So that, uh, you know, we must dispute about words. The point is, do we have the substance of it? No doubt we should be careful to think about why um, maybe a certain word is not used, but we're interested not in squabbling about words, but in what we have substantially here. What are the elements in the narrative um, that, uh, what do they tell us about the relationship? Right, and then um, you point out in your book, there's not only uh, Adam-Noah relationship with the um, the creation mandates and, and all of those things being restored, but there there seems to be an Adam-Israel parallel, um, Adam being the son of God, Israel being son of God, typically, and the reference in, I think it's Hosea 6, 7, if I'm not mistaken, to um, God saying, they like men, Adam, have broken my covenant, and there Israel is being said to have broken the covenant that God made with them in in a manner similar to Adam breaking covenant. And so that, that can be used as well, don't you think, um, biblically and exegetically to um, argue for a prelapsarian covenant with Adam? Well, there's a number of ways in which you can argue the prelapsarian covenant. If you take the Hosea passage, Hosea um, 6 verse 4, I think, um, the it's interesting to note that virtually all covenant theologians avoid basing their arguments upon that, although they virtually all seem to think that, in fact, you could base your argument on it. Right, in other right. words, he's talking about uh, Israel as like Adam having both the covenant. It seems to be the most logical explanation. All other explanations seem somewhat forced. And, right. and I agree that myself that that passage does support the argument, but it's a bit like many other matters. Uh, you've got many passages or many fundamental underlying concepts that support the doctrine. You don't have to rely um, uh, to prove the doctrine of the Trinity on the last verses of, uh, of um, Matthew's Gospel, for example. Right. It's, it's throughout. Uh, let's say the whole of Ephesians is, is Trinitarian, if you like. So, um, in the same way, covenant theology doesn't have to rely upon Hosea 6.4. But certainly, if you look at the narrative, uh, it, it, those early narratives, we so often get subverted into debates on uh, scientific issues and things like that. But when we actually try and look at it without the, uh, the prejudice that comes from polarized arguments and debates on those sort of things, there is just so much rich theology in there. Now, you, you can look at the whole thing with Adam, and you can say, well, what is the purpose here? What's God doing? Everything's very good, but does that mean it's at the highest level possible, that it's sort of perfect, and that uh, redemption in Christ means we just get back to that perfect paradise? And I'd say that's, that's a, a mis mistake, really. Mm, what right. we have is something that's very good, which means it's free of moral evil, and it's as God intended, but it is not at the highest level right. possible, because, for example... Uh, Adam didn't have eternal life. That was something in prospect for him. Right, he right. had a task to do. He had to subdue the earth and fill it. God had 
created things and we created them for a purpose. And the seventh day, uh, the, the day of rest, that obviously has a deeper significance as, and is later brought out in, even in the New Testament. And uh, right. things right. were made for a purpose. Even the, the very fact that Adam is God's son, and Luke, in his genealogy, traces us back to that, Adam, the son of God. The very idea of sonship, biblically, implies inheritance. In other words, the man has something in store. There's something in store for him. Now, the covenant theologians have debated this, and there's a fair bit of difference among them at times, but the idea of probation inevitably has to come in. We've got to be careful about being speculative about that, unduly, but the, clearly there is some purpose and point. So the typical covenant theologian would, say, would have said that God had some intention for man, that his condition would not continue forever as it was, but that ultimately, uh, this is a theoretical thing, obviously it's hypothetical, but he would have been raised to a higher level. Now, it's hypothetical, but what they're trying to do is to say that in Jesus Christ, what we re achieve in Jesus Christ is in fact what was in prospect, if you like, for the first Adam, but which was not available to him or to us because of his disobedience. Right. But the notion as a, that Adam is a son, therefore, if a son, then an heir. There was an inheritance for him. There are those promises there uh, of, of blessing and so on. Many different lines then, and I think this is an area where uh, more work can be done. Yeah. There are many lines taken up also elsewhere in Scripture that I think will, when carefully understood, will show us uh, a rich uh, uh, situation and one where God is, is seen to be not a contract God, as James Torrance wants to tell us all the time, but a God who desires the very best for his creatures and lavishes them generously with his mercy and goodness. Right. And, you know, I really wrestled personally with the idea of probation as a younger Christian getting into these things. And I read um, Gerhardus Voss on um, his chapter on prelapsarian revelation. And he really broke it down that, you know, God was testing Adam on his obedience and Satan came in and made that test a temptation and had Adam obeyed, you know, his obedience would have been evident to God. And, and had he disobeyed, which he did, you know, the fall would have come about in God's purposes and Adam would have chosen the evil over the good. So we, we can't, it's, it's a lot harder to take the, the concept that Adam would have just had this um, prohibition before him indefinitely or forever, um, always kind of looking out of the corner of his eye at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and understanding that probation. Suspended in uncertainty, you might say. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. So it, it seems a lot more logical to take it as this probationary period, the one temptation, the one trial culminating in either Adam gaining life and entering that Sabbath rest, that eschatological rest, or him um, falling as he did. So, um, yeah, I thought you dealt with that very well in your book. I mean, you cover all this stuff very well. And again, I just want to encourage our listeners to get this book and read it because it's going to open a whole world of uh, nuances that all of this stuff carries with it. Um, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Ward, you have the Adam-Noah, possibly the Adam-Israel parallel, and then ultimately all that's moving to Adam and Christ. And that's correct. the heart of covenant theology. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, in fact, uh, a lot of the argument covenant theologians use was this. They would say, look, um, we may not have specific terminology, 
But you cannot understand Paul in Romans, for example, in Romans 5 in particular. You cannot understand that without bringing in uh, the notion of covenant for Adam. Um, the, the, the parallel is there. It's an implication that is a necessary implication, they would argue. And uh, so I think that it's quite important uh, to see that. I mean, uh, uh, my argument is, and I think I might make reference to it in the book, that there are, in a sense, after the first Adam, there are a number of other Adams. I've already referred to Noah, who, and the language and descriptions about Noah sort of give you a parallel to the first Adam. He also sins, too, you know, when he's drunk, uh, drink, drinking the, mm-hmm. the, the wine, but, uh, and he's uncovered, just as, as uh, Adam was uncovered in the garden and they tried to hide themselves. So, you know, there's a deliberate design to help us see that. But that sort of idea of successive Adams carries through, um, and Israel's a good example. But you remember in the New Testament, Jesus is not called the second Adam that to the fight and to the rescue came, as the hymn writer puts it, He's called the last Adam. You see, that's really quite important. There is no other. He is the finality of all that was represented in a sense, but but, but fell short. He's the one who fulfills. He's the true um, Israelite, if you like. He's the true Israel, the one uh, who suffers that the people might be saved. Mm. That's very helpful to think about um, that paradigm, and it, it helps to make sense out of a lot of Scripture. I I shudder to think how we might understand Romans 5 without an understanding of a, of a covenant made with Adam or with man. Uh, it doesn't seem to make sense uh, to pull the covenant theology out. Uh, we start to do an injustice to much of Scripture. Now, have well, going back to the historical question, has this always been the case? So we, as Reformed people, many times can tend to take this for granted— uh, we mentioned a little bit about Calvin and others before, and that this idea has been disputed. Uh, can we speak about covenant theology in its different eras of development? What might we say about uh, covenant theology or federal theology before the Westminster Assembly? Well, you certainly have. I mean, uh, you, you certainly got what I think is the in embryo, you've got this kind of teaching. Now, I think Lig Duncan and, and, and others have done some work on the even the early period, right in the second century, and, and so on, where uh, some of the fathers, uh, the, their language is very compatible with uh, covenant thought. But it's like many things. Uh, it often takes uh, uh, controversy uh, to lead to refinement and clarification and more explicit and express statements on the subject. So I think uh, we need to remember that the church didn't begin in 1517 with Martin Luther or (laughs) or something like that, or 1560 in Scotland um, uh, with the Reformation there. Uh, We we draw from the very best in the past, but uh, there was a, a desire to remove all those uh, accretions that had grown up in the church, but then there was also this wrestling now seriously with the text of Scripture and in the context of the uh, various uh, Roman views about merit and all the rest of it, uh, and to give Jesus Christ the truth his true place. And I think, um, therefore, you have to say that covenant theology has its antecedents prior to um, uh, Calvin. Uh, and Polanus, for example, in the 1590s, it has its antecedents uh, 
um, uh, so it is not, it's not as if there's a completely new thing, mm. but there is this uh, uh, recognition and development and refinement, uh, which was still, in my judgment, uh, not uh, fully developed at the time of the Westminster Assembly. Um, and that accounts for some of the phrasing in the Westminster Standards that sort of uh, recognises uh, different ways of stating the common doctrine. That's very helpful. You also um, provide in your book what is, in my my thinking, one of the most important historical um, surveys where you go through the various views of different members of the assembly, and that's been an uh, increasingly important subject. And you mentioned Edmund Calamy's little treaties on the two covenants where he mentions uh, that he was on a committee for the Westminster Assembly on listening to different views. I think uh, Simpson and maybe he mentions Burgess and I forget who else who had different views on the precise relationship between uh, pre-lapsarian, post-lapsarian covenants and then the Mosaic covenant and its relationship to the new covenant. And um, could you just tell our listeners maybe a little bit to kind of whet their appetite on that and and what they might find in your book on that study? Well, Edmund Calamy was uh, a very popular preacher. He's supposed to be the most popular Presbyterian preacher in, in London, and he was a member of the Assembly. And uh, Burgess, if you mentioned Anthony Burgess, and, and others like Jeremiah Burroughs, and, and, and quite a number... Um, were Sidrak Simpson, for example, these guys were, uh, there was a lot of discussion about this. How do you formulate this? Because the Westminster Assembly is not about church government simply. And, of course, Chad Van Dixhorn's made that very abundantly clear in his recent work, that there's a lot of discussion on theology. It's not as if uh, there's people who are not Reformed. Uh, Reformed theology is common, but within Reformed theology, there are different ways of studying things. And... uh, uh, so they, they were wrestling with this sort of question. They don't want to put in the confession things that are just the opinion of a school that is within generic reformed thought. Mm-hmm. How do you frame this? And it's, it's quite surprising. In this little pamphlet, um, which was called, if I recall, Two Solemn Covenants Made Between God and Man, he, he discusses the variety of views, and some of those views are quite striking. Right. Um, now, to what degree... Uh, uh, all these views were sort of, um, uh, well, you can imagine in a discussion in, in an assembly, you know, you can put forward hypotheticals and stuff like that uh, to get people thinking. But there were uh, quite a number of discussions, and much of it focused around how do you understand the covenant that is made with Israel by the God through the hands of Moses? How do you understand this legal provision um, uh, that is given to Israel, how, how does that fit in with the fundamental covenant uh, of grace uh, that is announced in Genesis 3, but uh, comes to a formal covenant with Abraham? How, how do you relate that? And that remains one of the most difficult issues, and I, I'm, I'm not going to suggest that I can solve it. If John Owen says it's one of the most difficult issues, it is. Uh, <laughs> That's and, right. Uh, so it's not that easy to formulate it. So there's quite a lot of discussion about that. And uh, what ends up in the Westminster Confession is uh, the view that it's an administration of the covenant of grace. Uh, now, in other words, it's not sort of something that uh, annuls the covenant of grace um, with Abraham. And, of course, Paul's explicit on that. But it still remains 
there's some diversity of viewpoint as to how you are to relate that administration of the covenant of grace. Uh, and uh, you, you get uh, uh, quite a bit of, uh, uh, of difference on this, and, and Meredith Klein has taken up one particular angle on this, along with some other aspects of it, that really see it more as something that on one level was legal, on another level was not legal. And uh, he's not entirely wrong, but uh, I, I'm not quite sure he's entirely right either. Mm. Um, it's right. just a difficult issue there. But well, the fundamental idea that there are basically two covenants, so far as man is concerned, um, the covenant of works, although that terminology is by no means a fixed one, they're quite happy to use other language, and, and John Murray didn't like that term, and so he rejected the term covenant as well. But covenant of works or covenant of uh, favor or covenant of life, as uh, catechism has it, um, that sort of uh, idea, that sort of covenant, and then the covenant of grace, those two covenants are fundamental so far as man is concerned, and you've got to fit in the covenant uh, administration in the time of Moses, you've got to fit that in consistently with that. But that's the rub, just exactly to formulate it in an entirely satisfactory way. Now, what I find interesting is that though there were this ver these varieties of views um, the the confession doesn't present a variety of views. I know I've heard some men try to say, well, I prefer covenant of life over covenant of works, and I think the divines gave us that option. But the way I've, I've had this taught, and I think you present this to, to an extent, is that um, covenant of life is uh, the flip side. It's, that's the, the focusing on the promissory nature of the covenant of works, the works, the obligation, what God required, the life is the blessing that he would have obtained had he obeyed, represented by the, the tree of life and the Sabbath day. Um, but it does seem that the divines, that they, they give us a unified statement and that they never call the Mosaic covenant uh, a covenant of works. They do say it's an administration of the covenant of grace. They do call the law the moral law, the covenant of works, in, in, in its bare form, uh, not they don't use the word republication, but in larger catechism 94, they say uh, that those that are regenerate are delivered from the law as a covenant of works. So they do draw that correlation between um, the, 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 the Ten Commandments bound up in that one commandment Adam's given and the law given at Sinai. Is that correct? Is, that, is my understanding of that correct? Well, I suppose you. I, th I think sometimes in this area of understanding the Old Testament, we perhaps haven't been quite as clear as we might. Now, the divines in the Westminster Confession distinguish between three kinds of law: the moral law, the civil law, and the uh, and the ceremonial law. Mm -hmm. um, right. Now, I think that's actually a legitimate distinction because it's quite clear from uh, the Old Testament scripture itself that right. um, God desires. Uh, uh, the circumcision of the heart and uh, uh, social equity and so forth, the, these moral uh, ideas, um, and that the uh, ceremonial law is, uh, is subservient to that in a sense. I mean, the classic case would be David eating the showbread with his men, which was not lawful for him to eat, but there was a higher principle. Um, so I, I think that threefold distinction is legitimate, but... I think we need also to recognize that the covenant made with Israel, uh, the, the covenant of Moses, 
we are no longer under that covenant. Uh, right. That is quite clear in the New Testament. Um, we're not under that covenant. So how then do we uh, deal with them, what the divines call the moral law? Um, well, I take it, you see, that the Ten Commandments represent um, an exposition of the fundamental law of love of God and the neighbor in a form suited to Israel, and that those, that ten, that those ten commandments really are, are the fundamental moral law that predates the law with, right. uh, uh, with Moses, under Moses. And so I would put it this way, and I think, I, I, I think some of the earlier divines, certainly I think Thomas Boston, if I remember, uh, might say this way, we receive uh, the Ten Commandments not from the hands of Moses, but from the hands of Christ. Right. Well, what they mean, uh, by that they mean that the moral law uh, in the Ten Commandments is in a form of, of words that's appropriate to Israel's circumstance, but Jesus gives us the true exposition of that in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't abandon it. He gives us the true ethical intent of the law, uh, and he says he hasn't come to abolish it, and that in that sense, the moral law um, uh, is something that we aspire to as Christians. We're not under it as a law of works. Um, we're freed from that. Christ has borne uh, uh, for us the, uh, uh, the penalty due to us for our sins. He's uh, suffered, if, if you like, under the, the covenant of works on our behalf. Right. And now we are set free. And the, uh, the ethics of gratitude apply here as they did indeed in the Old Testament, but the ethics of gratitude apply here. Uh, this is what the Holy Spirit enables us to aspire to and work to, uh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. So I, I think that's not always so clearly put out. We try and say, oh yes, well a moral law and the covenant still exists. Um, and it, it does, but it's the way you state it. Right, and uh, right. that's why I say receiving the the, the, the law from the hands of Christ rather than from the hands of Moses tries to uh, highlight that significant difference um, that we now in Christ are freed from the condemning sentence of the law, set free to serve and love our Lord and, uh, and to keep the commandments not simply negatively but positively through the enabling of the Spirit. Now, oh, no, Jeff, go ahead, go ahead Jeff. Sorry. I jump in? Yeah, I want to... Uh, it's something you just said about how the, the, the Ten Commandments reflect uh, the moral law, which predates the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Because yep. there, there are going to be some people uh, who would, you know, from the New Testament perspective, would, would wonder how a Gentile could be said to be under the law of Moses. Uh, and I think you gave, you provide an answer uh, for what you said, in as much as the uh, the Decalogue reflects uh, the abiding moral law uh, that's in effect from creation. Right. And in that sense, it can be said that Gentiles have broken God's law, right? Because if you simply said that the that that the Ten Commandments, uh, how how do I put this? If we simply said that the uh, the issue of uh, a problem with being uh, the continuation, say, of the Mosaic administration. Um, yeah, I'm tying myself up in knots here for no good reason. But it, it, there would be a sense in which Gentiles could look at this whole question and say, who cares? Because we've never been under the law. 
That's right. But Paul, of course, makes very plain that the uh, the, the, the Gentiles have the law written on their hearts. We all are people who are creatures of God, and we can never escape from that, and we can never say that is not so. We may uh, try and persuade ourselves it's not so, but we are always in that situation that we know the judgments of God, that there's that fundamental stamp in our very nature and constitution, that we are God's creatures and that we are accountable to him for what we might call uh, the, the, the moral law. Uh, we're accountable to him for what is in, in, involved in the principles stated in the Ten Commandments. But if you say to someone, uh, you've broken the Ten Commandments, you might say, well, I, I was never uh, a Jew, I'm not a Jew, they were never given to me. But uh, if you say, well, of course, they received what was already fundamental, republished in a form suitable for them, but in, involving the, the principles which, in fact, Jesus expounds and shows their true intent, Right. then you, you've got him, you see. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting in the history of Reformed theology and all the men that you, you have researched and studied, I have never found one that disagrees with what you just said, that that is almost a a given that Romans 2, the law written on the hearts of Gentiles, and um, Romans 5, law was given to Adam, law was given to Israel, externally given, that, that all of those things are tied into this. But today, this whole thing is under attack, even in Calvinistic circles where um, a lot of our brothers who I respect a lot um, will not read Romans 2 as saying that, but it, it just seems very self-evident that if we're all from Adam and Adam was made in God's image, Adam had God's law written on his heart. So, That's right. Well, I'm, I'm going to start teaching a course in, 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 a, in the School of Theology here in Melbourne for this semester. I've not done it before, but it's on theology and it's on the knowledge of God. Uh, and that's the very first lesson I'm going to hammer because unless you get that right, uh, then the whole question of, of man's obligation to God, the whole question of the missionary mandate, everything mm. is, is, is confused and up for grabs. Uh, we have to reassert and reaffirm that we are creatures. And as one uh, preacher I know once said, a Nazi on the day of judgment won't be able to say, well, when I shot those people in the head and threw them into a pit, I was not a man. I was just a beast, and so I'm not responsible. He'll not be able to say that. Right. Because we are accountable to God for all things, and that has to be reasserted uh, and reaffirmed and get that right, and you probably can get everything else right. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't get that one right, you've really got a shaky problem. Right. Now, so, uh, go ahead, Josh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, just one more thing is related. So when the reformers like Calvin uh, discuss what they call natural law, or what the divines might call the light of nature, they're actually referring to the moral law that is in uh, Adam's, written on Adam's heart. Yes, I think uh, that's, that's correct, yes. Because, well, the reason I only mention that simply because natural law, like any, any concept, can be defined differently, right? There's, there's a natural law doctrine that was taught in the Enlightenment that's very different. But it, yeah. it's uh, important to note that for someone like John Calvin, the natural law is, the moral law is, the Ten Commandments. That's so. right. And we, of course, talk in terms of general revelation. Right, correct. Knowledge of, of God and, uh, and our obligations to him. 
Um, that's different, of course, from natural theology, where we try and spin right. up a theology out of our own minds. But right. natural revelation, that's the fundamental emphasis that Paul's giving us there. And it's really fundamental to the whole of Scripture. Right. Now, Dr. Ward, you spend a good bit of time at the end of this book dealing with covenant theology in the 20th century, and we've mentioned throughout this interview the Murray-Klein division. That's a very hot topic in American reform circles right now between seminaries, between friends. I mean, I have this discussion with friends on almost a daily basis trying to nail down where I would fall in that whole discussion. Could you, just for our listeners, very briefly explain Murray's view with regard to the Mosaic Covenant and the Covenant of Grace, Klein's view as you understand it with regard to the Mosaic Covenant and the Covenant of Grace, and maybe how they got to where they got, or at least how Klein got to where he got with uh, the Shepherd controversy? Well, you've asked for something. Uh, you've asked for much in small space. I'm not quite sure I can manage that. <laughs> I'm sorry. The interesting, thing is, the interesting thing is this book actually arose about 10 years ago. I was visiting the States. I went to Westminster East and Westminster West, and I was concerned about the polarization there was at that point over this covenant theology. And I was asked to write a chapter in a book for, on Reformed theology, and looking down the list of other contributors, it looked pretty reasonable. But I said to the person who was a partisan supporter of Klein, I would write it as I found it. And uh, anyhow, the book didn't get published. It wasn't proceeded with. But instead of a 20-page article, he got a 200-page book instead um, <laughs> to prove. <laughs> now, I'm, the, the problem is this, that too often we polarize things or too often we're influenced by immediate circumstances. Now, what we have with Murray is, first of all, he thought you shouldn't talk about a covenant of works because works sounded terribly like merit, you see. Well, I think right. that's a silly sort of objection because the divines repeatedly are not concerned about whether you call it works or whether you call it covenant of life or mm. uh, covenant of favor or whatever. That's, that's, but that, that there is an obligation. Right. That was the concern. Of course, the end in view was life. Um, uh, so different names can be given. So he had a problem with that. So he doesn't use the term uh, covenant of works. He doesn't use the term covenant either because he doesn't think Hosea 6-7 uh, should be utilized in this discussion to prove a covenant with Adam. And in that, he's, he, he, really, that's the common viewpoint of Reformed writers. We all think it's, well, most of us, apart from Murray, think it's, uh, it's a good text, but we don't use it because it, it, it's cap it is capable of something else, perhaps. And we've got plenty of other uh, bases for it. But he, his, really, his real problem was you can't talk about a covenant with Adam because the term is not used. And when a covenant is used, it's always bound up with redemptive purpose. And therefore, we can't uh, say that there was a redemptive purpose with Adam before sin. And uh, uh, therefore, uh, and further, covenant implies a commitment by God that gives us security, and that there was no security for Adam, he could fall. So these are the sort of arguments that he uses. Now, he's a bit, in some aspects, he's a bit similar to a much earlier writer around about 1600 and something, 1603, Bucanus, um, a Swiss writer, but, you know, in this reservation about the, the language. But the point is that nevertheless, he concedes everything that belongs to covenant theology. But uh, he does, even though he rejects the terminology, the substance is admitted. The problem is, though, he muddies the waters. And other people have taken his view 
uh, his views and his reservations and sort of uh, gone a bit further with them. Right. And I don't see in any of the work that he wrote that he discusses the passages in Jeremiah which talk about the covenant with creation, and my covenant for day and night and that kind of thing. If he had looked at that, uh, maybe he would have revised his opinion, uh, maybe not. But uh, Murray is a great theologian, and uh, but he belonged to a period, I suppose, when covenant theology, well, there weren't too many people advocating covenant theology with any strength. And perhaps he's just got a little bit of a biblicism from the American context, uh, avoiding using a certain language because scripture doesn't, whereas we're really interested in the substance of things. And so he's a covenant theologian, but he does use this kind of language that's a bit unfortunate. Now, when you come to Meredith Klein, Klein is straight down the line, so far as the Westminster Confession Doctrine of Covenant, until about 1980. And at that point, he changes, and he emphasizes that there, he, he talks about merit in a way which earlier writers were very careful. Strict, uh, he, he, said, he talks about strict merit versus congruent merit, or not making the distinction, but almost speaks of it as strict merit. Yeah, he wants to say, if Adam keeps, God is obliged. Now, well, That's because God has bound himself, it, though. But that's congruent merit, and he doesn't, Klein doesn't no, really make... No, it's not congruent merit if it's ex pacto. Um, be, it depends on how you view what God has done. If God has entered into an, an agreement yes. with man, the God is obliged because he himself has bound himself, according to his word, to reward a- Adam should Adam obey. Right, well, that, that, that's, that's the, the merit. Is that the point I was going to make? Yeah. It, it, it's, in fact... That's not congruent, you know, though. I, I don't like Klein's emphasis in some respects. I think the way especially people like Karl Berg have advocated it is distasteful, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, but, but probably, you see, in all of this discussion between him and Shepard, there's reaction and counter-reaction. I think he develops his view because he doesn't like the terminology of grace in regard to the covenant with Adam, which nevertheless the early reform writers are quite happy with. Non redemptive, of course. Adam hasn't sinned, but uh, grace and favour, they're quite happy to use that language. But in the, in the conflict with, with um, Shepherd, this idea of grace and without obligation, in the same way as the earlier writers, he, he's worried about this. So he then, I think, wants to, um, to insist on merit. Now, when you look at it, he's. He really wants to say, well, yeah, maybe God is not actually obliged to reward mm. as, as of merit strictly. Um, it's because of his covenant that he's committed himself to reward. Yeah. And if that's the case, if that's really what he means, I don't think that's terribly objectionable. That uh, seems to me fair enough. Uh, it's certainly within uh, legitimate bounds. I don't have a problem with that. Um, but his, his great beef is to... Uh, to emphasize uh, not, uh, 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 the parallel between Adam and Christ and to say that merit is, is appropriate in both cases. And, and I think merit is not quite the term I would use in regard to, to Adam, even though I speak of that merit in terms of uh, ex pacto, in terms of God's covenant commitment. Um, uh, he, but he's, 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 not far, he's not far off. His distinctive viewpoint uh, perhaps also is that 
he talks about the works element in the Mosaic Covenant. Mm. Now, Klein is not... Klein is a, a very fruitful writer. I mean, he's very stimulating. I never met him or anything like that, and I'm told that if you uh, sort of dis- disagree with his terminology, he didn't like it, uh, that he could be pre- pretty sensitive on that. Uh, but I think he's probably got a little bit sophisticated here. At any rate, he talks about the works element in the covenant made with Moses, uh, and he says that there is a works element there, but it operates on the temporal level uh, and on the earthly level to illustrate a principle of inheritance by through works, um, but it doesn't operate that way on the spiritual level. So he wants to have it both ways. Um, now, I, I, again... I, I think we have to be we have to be careful about not getting too uh, you know not getting our guns out and shooting time here. <laughs> but you know he, he certainly stirred the, the pot and got a whole lot of pigeons flying around. Um, <laughs> and I'm not quite sure that the, the pigeons are the ones I want to eat. Uh, now w- the, the issue really for him, I think, I think he polarized against Norman Shepherd. Now, Shepard is, 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 takes a view on, on covenant theology, which has its antecedents. I don't personally like it, uh, because I think it's got many dangers. He wants to talk about God, Adam is created in covenant with God, and I agree with that. Um, but he, he wants to just say it's, it's, a bond, uh, it's a, a bond of love, and all it seeks is love and faithfulness in return. And he wants to sort of uh, say, well... Life is a gift. It's not merited by the performance of good works. It's received by faith, that kind of thing. And in the, ex- the exposition that some people give of this in the Reformed uh, camp in North America is one where they don't give any attention to Romans 5 at all. I've got a book here by one of the uh, writers in the Dutch tradition where this viewpoint is, well, has its prevalence, uh, where there's not a single textual reference to that. Mm. And I just find that amazing. But I suspect what's happening here is in the American context, you've often got easy believism. I mean, yeah. we have it here. Yeah. And so on the one hand, you've got people who want to, uh, to counter that. On the other hand, you've got people who say, well, you're just legalists. Uh, you're tied up with a wrong understanding of covenant theology and, and all the rest of it, and you're just imposing legal burdens. And uh, uh, so as a result of that, You've got different positions. Now, my view is you can learn from both of these people. I think Shepherd really does not represent the historic line of covenant theology, although he does represent uh, a line that has some standing, particularly in the Dutch churches, where the advances of covenant theology uh, in the early 17th century were not incorporated in any, in any creedal revision. So they were left with the earlier statements from uh, you know, the 1560s, and so, although the Dutch were great exponents of covenant theology, some of the finest exponents uh, would be Vitzius and, and Herman Barbank, of course, a great exponent, a terrific uh, uh, section in his Reformed dogmatics on that. Um, uh, despite that, it was never incorporated in their creedal statements. And so there have been other voices that have come out that have sort of reacted or counter-reacted to various other tendencies. So we do have this diversity. But I think the Westminster lines give us the fundamental lines. There's a bit of scope for variation within them, and that's deliberate. 
as a consensus creed, but I'm very happy to stick closely to the Westminster Confession and try and keep other discussions in a proper perspective. We do not want to fall out over this and shoot ourselves in the foot. That's very helpful. Um, I I think it's always a safe bet, or generally a safe bet, to stick closely to the Westminster Confession. There's so much rich theology in there that's proven itself through years and years of of trials. And, uh, well, I hate to say it, but for the sake of uh, time and our scheduling, I think we have to start wrapping things up. But I want to uh, thank you so much, Dr. Ward, for joining us. And this has been a a great discussion, and we hope to maybe speak with you in the future and maybe flesh some of these other areas out that we weren't able to touch on today. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you, brothers. Yeah, and I do want to mention uh, where everyone else can be found online. We will have links to all of uh, Dr. Ward's resources and his church, Knox Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, Australia. All of that will be on the website uh, for this this, uh, particular episode, reformforum.org. Nick is available at newcovpres.org. And com. com. I always get to flip the two around. <laughs> Newprez or newcovprez.com. It's New Covenant Presbyterian Church in Richmond Hill, Georgia. And uh, Jeff, a lot of uh, you can find some sermons for Jeff, and as well as his uh, partner in uh, ministry, like that. Not yeah, crime. I'm glad you didn't say partner in crime. Right, yeah. partner in ministry, uh, Jim Cassidy at uh, Calvary-Amwell.org. And of course, we're available reformforum.org and there you'll find links to all of our websites as well as all of our other programs and everything that we're doing in audio and video and text all sorts of media Uh, but uh, as we wrap things up I want to tell everyone thank you so much for listening and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center